When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Nothing discussed is meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Hello, and welcome to Psychologically Minded. My name is Grace Fowler, and today we are going to be talking about Britney Spears. Well, to be fair, we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff related to the Britney Spears case. Um, If you aren't aware or haven't seen the news in the last few months, um, there's been some developments in the Britney Spears case. Britney Spears uh, is an American pop star who came to fame when she was very young, um, in her teens, and several years later, after some tumultuous incidences in her life, um, was subsequently put under a conservatorship in California and has not had control over her estate since then. And recently, there has been some episodes in court where um, Miss Spears has been able to testify on her behalf, um, and we've been able to learn more about her situation. So what I want to do with this episode is I want to kind of go in three different sections here. So the first is I want to talk about conservatorships, why they are, and what they have to do with mental health. Um, Then I want to talk about Britney Spears and uh, the way that she's been represented in the media through a feminist lens. And then I want to wrap up with some information about women and mental health in general. Um, And I do want to say from the beginning that I don't believe there's any public information about if Britney Spears has been diagnosed with a mental health disorder or what that disorder is. And I'm frankly... I don't think that it matters for us to know um, what her disorder, or if she has a diagnosis and what it would be, Uh, and I'm not interested in speculating about what diagnosis she may have, So I I, and I will not be doing that because it's not appropriate for me to diagnose anyone that I'm not working with, Um, and to to diagnose off of, like, basically word of mouth um, at this point. So regardless of whatever the reason for the conservatorship was in the Britney Spears case, I do still think these three areas are something um, that is important to talk about. And this may be a bit of a doozy of an episode because I did find some stuff when I was researching this that was really, really interesting and um, I think I think is useful information regardless of if you're following this case or not. So to start with, we're going to start off with talking about conservatorships. So, conservatorships. What are they? (laughs) The sort of basic definition of a conservatorship is um, when an individual is unable to make certain financial or personal care decisions by themselves, um, someone is appointed to kind of take care of those certain decisions and handle those assets for them. So I'm going to be talking about how conservatorships are defined in California because that's where 
Britney Spears is conservatorship is happening, and that's where I am. So that's where you know I'm most familiar with these types of um, these types of things. And so, and conservatorships are are handled by the legal system. And so, as a mental health professional, uh, or as like a mental health from the mental health side, I think that it's important that we be able to understand the different way that the legal system or the criminal justice system sees mental health um, versus how we see mental health. And, you know, in the legal system, it's typically situated more as like an illness model, right? Like we're the mental, the legal system is only concerned with mental health when it becomes like a deficit, right? When there's like, there's something impairing your ability to take care of yourself or your estate. Uh, whereas from the mental health field, right, we're we're talking about mental health holistically, where we're talking, you know, we're we want to consider like wellness as well as illness. So, I think those are those starting points really do make a difference in in how these issues are sort of approached. So in California, there are um, two main types of conservatorships that your conservatorship may fall under. Um, the first type is called probate. This is based on the probate code, and there are three like subtypes of probate conservatorship. So the first one is just a general conservatorship, and so this is for um, any adult who is unable to handle their finances or to care for themselves. So the most common population that you'll see with this type of conservatorship is uh, elderly people, particularly those who develop... Um, illnesses such as dementia or Alzheimer's where they're, they're starting to lose the ability to um, maintain cognitive function or maintain um, like every like day-to-day activities that would help them to maintain control over their finances or their or the care of themselves. So that's who you're mostly going to see under a general conservatorship. There are some instances like for younger people who maybe they get into an accident that causes like severe injury to a point where they're not able to take care of themselves, there may be a conservatorship appointed in that case as well. The next type under probate is called a limited conservatorship, and so this is specifically for adults, so someone who's over the age of 18 who has a developmental disability that means they, they, they may not be able to fully take care of themselves or their estate, but they don't need the same level of care as the people in the general conservatorship. So for limited, and that's what's called limited because the conservator uh, in this case who is assigned uh, may not have access to every single one of the adult's um, assets or may not be authorized to make certain decisions um, because the assumption is that the person under the limited conservatorship does still have um, ability and agency to make certain types of decisions. So the, the the level of impairment is different for limited. And then the third type of probate conservatorship is, is temporary. So this is basically if you don't have enough time to get a general or a limited for someone, you can petition for a temporary, which is like this person needs immediate help right now and needs an immediate conservator before we have time to determine if they're eligible for general or limited. And so all of these probate ones are for either develop, developmental disability or like physical health situations. The second type of conservator, like main type of conservatorships in California are these kinds that are called LPS conservatorships, which stands for Lanterman Petra Short. 
which is the name of the law in 1969 that established that conservatorships can be used for those who have severe mental illnesses or chronic substance use um, and who may not be able to voluntarily agree to a conservator. So these are separate um, because you can still apply this conservatorship even if the person under it is not consenting. Um, and these are specifically focused on um, mental illnesses or substance use issues. So in like the probate side, like the person who's going to be under the conservatorship may have actually said, I want to have a conservator over me. Like I know I'm going into decline or I know I'm coming into a point where my health is going to be too difficult for me to manage alone. I want to go into this situation. Whereas the LPSs, typically those are like, somebody is in so much distress because of a mental illness to a point where their ability to take care of themselves has been impaired, so they're put into this conservatorship against their will. So you see why this type gets a little iffy because this issue of like voluntarily agreeing to a conservatorship, you know, there's like this insinuation that, well, if you couldn't consent to enter into it, then you can't consent to exit out of it. So it, there's a like this fear that these type of conservatorships will never end, even if the person is able to recover uh, from their substance use or, or mental illness. So in, if you're in the state of California, those are the two main roads to conservatorships that you're going to see. Um, and there is a document available through the Judicial Council of California that also outlines um, the rights of a conservatee. So being underneath a conservatorship does not mean that you have absolutely no rights anymore. Um, in fact, some of the rights that they outline include like the conservative still has the right to vote, has the right to marry, has the right to receive their salary. Um, some of those are potentially able to be waived if a judge deems that the conservative is unable to make those decisions. But the implicit understanding is that the conservative has the has those rights. Those those are like established inalienable rights, due for the conservative as the person who lives in the state of California, they have access to those rights. And additionally, if the conservative is living in some sort of care facility that is you know facilitating their their recovery or their well-being, then they also um, are subject to the Patient Bill of Rights, which is a document that basically says if you're receiving, you know, any type of treatment, healthcare, medical, mental health care treatment, uh, you have certain rights as to like rights to your privacy, um, rights to know what is happening, you know, informed consent, all that stuff. So that stuff still applies. So even if you're under a, a conservatorship, it doesn't mean that you're like a non-person, <laughs> right? Like you, you have rights. And I think that's really important to understand because those of us who maybe don't interact with the legal system as much or aren't familiar with this type of uh, system, we may hear kind of like the outline of conservatorships and think, oh my gosh, that must be so horrible, like you're stripping a person of everything, but, and, and not to say that there aren't people that like still violate rights and, you know, abuse and stuff, that's another issue, but the underlying assumption is that just if you're under a conservatorship, you're still eligible for certain rights and those rights should not be taken away from you. And in a legal brief that I was reading, authored by a student um, a few years ago, they stated that it's important to understand that conservators, because conservatives have these rights, and because conserva conservatives are still considered, you know, people who sh who are protected by rights and laws of the state of California, then conservative 
deters are not exempt from laws that relate to types of abuse, so physical, financial, emotional, you know, any type of abuse, you're not exempt from that as a conservator because you have this like legal authority over certain parts of a conservatee's life. So that means that we, you can report people who are conservators for violations that are related to like financial abuse or physical abuse. So, and th this is just really relevant to protect the populations that are most likely to be in conservatorships are also populations that fortunately are t typically subjected to mandated reporting laws. So for example, uh, elderly people, I believe it's over adults over the age of 65 are uh, as mandated reporters. We are subjected to report any suspicion of abuse toward them. The same with any adult with a uh, who's considered like gravely disabled or considered disabled like as mandated reporters it's our job those of us who are it's our job to report any suspicion of abuse toward those populations and those are the populations that are typically covered by conservatorship so all of that to say that just because someone is in a conservatorship does not mean that they don't have rights or they don't have certain agencies just kind of in a short rundown like why would we need conservatorships like when are they useful and conservatorships can be useful when um, a person becomes impaired and has not had the opportunity to delegate who will have control of their estate or who will have access to their personal care decisions through documents such as living trust or powers of attorney so those living trust powers of attorney those are additional separate documents that I don't know a whole lot about because I'm not a lawyer <laughs> Um, but those are things that people can set up beforehand, like if they know they're going to be ill or if they are, you know, just, just like sort of in, ca in case this situation happens, like here are the people I'm determining who will take care of me and will take care of my money. I'm going to go ahead and say that most of us probably don't set that up beforehand because <laughs> we don't know what they are. You know, we're not aware of them. Um, so conservatorships are helpful for people who were not able to set up those um like recourses in advance and you know have some level of impairment where they need to be protected where it would be dangerous for them to not have someone looking out for their personal care. Um, These conservatorships can also be really useful um, when there's family stuff going on and I think this is relevant to the Spears case in that it shows why a family member a, a member of the Spears family should never have been a conservator um, in her case and that you want the conservator to be a neutral party well not neutral because they're technically representing the interests of the conservatee but you want them to not be aligned with any members of the family and if you ever read through any of these legal briefs or these articles about um, conservatorship and like civil rights violations a lot of the case studies and case examples they use are about family members where you know one family member is taking care of like maybe an elderly relative or a relative with some sort of impairment and then all of a sudden another family member who wants at the money or wants at the estate or whatever comes in out of nowhere um, files the paperwork gets a conservatorship and uh, you know like takes over takes over control of this elderly relative so like that's where the flaw is in the system is that you when you have these like high conflict family situations you want the conservator to be someone who's neutral you don't want the conservator to be working for any of the parties that's like seeks to gain from 
the conservatee being in a certain situation seeks to gain from taking advantage of the conservatee overall. And and that's where, and this is kind of like the part where I'm going to tiptoe into the Spears case in particular, like I don't think it was appropriate in that case for there to be a family member who was the conservator. And one of the blind spots of the legal system, particularly people who operate outside of family court, is they're not aware of how these like high conflict family situations can play out. So, you know, family court is where things like custody battles take, you know, custody cases, divorce, stuff like that happens. And the people who work in that type of court um, are like well aware of what's going on, right? Like they know that one parent is going to say this, another parent is going to say that, they're going to directly contradict each other, and the truth is somewhere in the middle. And I've had colleagues and professors who have worked with families or with children who are going through these type of like contentious family court cases and it really does take a certain type of like skill to to assess these types of families and to be able to gather everyone's story gather one's everyone's information and make like a holistic determination of the situation and from what i've heard about the spears's case and how her conservatorship was granted uh, it does not seem like the people involved in her case were like aware of these dynamics or maybe they were aware of those dynamics but were not necessarily um, interested in mitigating them is I think maybe the most polite way to say that Um, and so it's just it's something to be aware of that you know family stuff family conflict especially when it becomes very volatile or very personal, like a lot of people are involved, um, it's it's better to tread lightly and slowly than it is to make decisions. So if you're in the legal arena and you don't have as much experience with these types of people, I would really encourage you to, if you're going to be involved with things like conservatorships or with family court of just like learning about how families communicate and how, you know, different types of maybe unhelpful communication patterns or unhelpful ways of interacting with each other can, you know, become very locked into families um, and make it difficult for an outsider to truly know what is going on. So that's just kind of what I have to say <laughs> about that and why in in situations like that, I I personally think that it's best to have a neutral conservator who isn't going to be kind of caught up in the drama basically of a family um and then and finally the last reason why uh we might want a conservatorship is that it does provide more structure for people who need higher levels of care um there's like the assumption that there's going to be more contact, like you're going to have this individual one-on-one person who's there to take care of your needs versus, you know, if you um, were to just have general court supervision or you were to be placed into a facility where there's not enough staff. So it does kind of benefit the conservative to have like one designated person who's there to help them make decisions um, and, and navigate legal and financial stuff, which is um, incredibly confusing (laughs) and already difficult um, when you're not also dealing with an illness or or another impairing issue. Um, The downside of conservatorships are that um, 
because they are handled through the court and uh, often are like the, you you have to go through a hearing um, those become part of the public record so basically you're by going through a conservatorship hearing you're like putting on blast why you need a conservator um, and like what the situation is around that so if somebody really wanted to know they could pull up the court records and you know look through the public records and that might feel not worth it to some people to to go through the process particularly if they are in a stage where they're um, still able to like make the decisions and voluntarily enter into a conservatorship um, obviously the entering into a conservatorship means there's a loss of power and independence like I mean that's, that's just like across the board true like even though there's benefits to having someone take charge of certain decisions like you do lose power and you lose your independence and that can that might not always be the most helpful thing for like wellness, right? Like like losing this feeling of control, losing this feeling of like I have autonomy and I have agency um, may contribute to like increasing in symptoms or just like not feeling well or not feeling in charge of you know your own health, even even if you you technically are right. The the, the conservators for other issues. Um, and, then, and then the final downside to conservatorships is that it is very difficult to petition the court for any changes. So, you know, like I mentioned before that conservatives have this, this list of rights and, and a lot of those rights include things like the conservative has the right to petition the judge to make changes, like to change their conservator or to petition to end the conservator or to reevaluate the conservatorship. Um, to maybe shift which permissions the conservator has and access to which resources. Um, and it's really difficult to do that. And specifically, I think with the Spears case, we've seen that um, conservatives may not necessarily know their rights and the conservators, and I'm going to say this, people who are bad conservators, <laughs> right? Like, I don't think everyone who goes into becoming a conservator does it for these intentions, but people who go in with bad intentions are not going to be inclined to inform their conservatees of what their rights are. Um, and so then you get to a situation where we hear this testimony come out where Miss Spears says to the judge, I didn't even know that I could ask for it to end. I didn't even know that I had these abilities because my lawyer never told me. Um, and I really hope that we do see that sort of be highlighted as this case moves forward, that that was a violation of her rights and that whoever was behind not telling her that or not being clear about that information um, should have some repercussions and that it should be very clear to people coming in to these situations as conservators that you need to communicate rights to your conservatives and as conservatives if you're able to, you know, how to access your rights. Um, and one of the things that I read in the in the law brief that talked about some of the stuff around abuse is that uh, they made this case that every time kind of like high-profile conservatorship cases break into the media, there's a big push for reform. And so, um, like in 2006, there was a big piece in the LA Times about a conservatorship, and it, it resulted in like two laws being passed that led to like court investigators having to actually talk to first and second degree relatives of the conservative um, and that the conservative was um, like at all what as much as possible was supposed to be kept in their own home uh, like that was the priority so th those were two laws that came about because of the big media push so and, and there was another instance again in like 2014 where uh, financial abuse of conservatorships was kind of unveiled in the media and some reforms were made and so 
you know, I don't, I don't know if the reform cycle is necessarily helpful, but I think that it is useful to know that this like pressured media attention on these cases does put pressure on people in this system and in the legal system. And so, you know, maybe instead of pushing for reform, it can be a good idea for us as the public to start pushing for, you know, a, a rehaul of the system of not just like tiny reforms sort of like breaking it down and rebuilding the system in a way that does guarantee the rights of conservatives um, and, and, you know, mandating that those rights are protected above all else. So that is kind of just to wrap up what conservatorships are. And I would encourage you to like seek out, I have sources on this that I'll, you know, I'll put on my website on the sources page, um, but, you know, seek out like legal professionals and their understanding of conservatorships because this again is a legal term um it's just that because of like the lps type of conservatorship like people with mental health issues get sucked into the system as well so that's where like this intersection is um and so with that um i'd like to next talk about britney spears specifically and not not her situation that led to her conservatorship but just kind of like the way that the media has approached Britney Spears. So moving into talking about Britney Spears, I want to talk about these two articles that I found um, that kind of approach the way that Britney Spears has been portrayed in the media through a feminist lens. And I, both these articles I found are really interesting. Um, one is from 2003 uh, and one is from 2019. So I, I, I liked how they kind of highlighted different um, like time periods in which we talk about Britney Spears or and talk about women in the media in general. So the first article is by Melanie Lowe. It was published in um, the Journal of Popular Music and Society in 2003, and her article is called Colliding Feminisms, Britney Spears, Tweens, and the Politics of Reception. Um, and so basically to break down the concept of the article, she did a series of focus groups with like adolescent or pre-adolescent, pre-adolescent girls in 1999, which was like the peak of Britney Spears. I think in that year she had like topped the pop charts with her album. You know, this was like classic, like, uh, hit me baby one more time era. This was when uh, a lot of the controversial photo shoots had happened. Uh, the ones where she was like infantilized. Um, and sexualized. And so in the process of these focus groups, um, the author would play some of the songs. And she uh, wasn't just focusing on Britney Spears. Like Overall, she was focusing on pop music of the time, and, and the girls in the focus group would listen to like NSYNC, 98 Degrees, Backstreet Boys, and then Britney Spears, as those were like the most popular pop acts of the time. And so, but she spends this article specifically talking about the reactions to Britney Spears songs. And so she outlines this very like interesting reaction where, when the songs would come up or or when Britney Spears' name was mentioned first, the girls would kind of jump into this like anger. They would be like really angry and a lot of name calling. Like they would say, Britney Spears is a slut or she's a whore, and they would immediately jump to this kind of like she's bad she's bad she's bad um and then later in the focus groups she noticed there was the shift to where the girls were talking about like we love britney spears we identify with her because she 
is like the same age as us because um, at that time I believe Britney Spears was like 16 <laughs> so she was and had become famous like at the age that some of the girls were in the group so they felt like she was a peer they really identified with her and a lot of them identified her as like she's very hard working you know she's she's done all this on her own like it was it was like this dichotomy they would go from like we hate her because um, of the way she dresses and then later in the group they would say like we think it's really empowering how she dresses and so the author kind of talks about how as a group like as a social group the girls would just sing they knew at the horns to every song like the song would come on and the, every girl in the group would just like sing it top of their lungs along with each other and then after the song ended when they were asked to discuss it is when they would kind of dive into this like analysis of what the song meant to them and and I thought I one thing that I thought was really cool about this article was how the author contextualized like this process of that in the social group when they're just singing the song it's their their understanding of Britney Spears is based upon this like shared social enjoyment that's like this is a song that we all love like in the moment no one is stopping and being like uh you know this lyric or uh you know this thing about this person they're just enjoying the song and then as they talked through the song even if they started at a point of anger or um, there were some instances where some of the girls in the group were, like, waiting for her to fail, like, express this desire of, like, Britney Spears will fail, or, you know, she's making the decisions. But as the girls talked through it, they would get to a point where they would be able to say, they would have more nuanced, basically, takes on Britney Spears. And so, like, you know, they they would be able to move away from just, like, this reactionary response of of calling her names and being able to discuss of like well if she's wearing that outfit I hope that at the end of the day she got to make that choice um and so and so low kind of highlights that this is the girls engaging in like feminist discussion um and moving away from like post-feminism which she describes as like post-feminism is like we're each an individual it doesn't matter what we do it's it's basically post-modernism right like if there's there's only relative truth, so whatever you do is, is right for you. But that the girls, even though they live in this post-feminist world, were engaging in feminist discussion um, and were able to make this determination that they they wanted... What they wanted for Britney Spears was like what they wanted for everyone, right? Like they wanted Britney Spears to be able to be comfortable in what she wore, wears and they didn't want anyone to force her in either way. Like they didn't want... Uh, her to be forced to dress sexually explicitly and they didn't want her to be forced to be dressed like like a little girl if that's not what she wanted um and i think you know on one hand this article is interesting because it kind of speaks to the social process in which young young women and girls engage with each other and how something that we may deem as silly as like pop music or celebrity um can actually be a catalyst for you know thoughtful analysis um but i think it also highlights the the kind of narratives that were in the air at the time around Britney Spears trickled down to how the girls discussed essentially one of their peers. Um, And so that, I think, is a good transition into the second article, which is by Jennifer Musial. Uh, It was published in Feminist Formations in 2019, and it's called We Are Country, Britney Spears, Southern White Femininity, and the American Dream. Um, And so this article uh, is based upon this analysis of the various 
texts, gossip sites, documentaries, media appearances, basically all of the media content around Britney Spears. And Musial makes this argument that Britney Spears, because of where she comes from, represents working class rural white women, um, which is diametrically opposed to the type of woman that the celebrity machine, as she calls it, seeks out. So uh, she she talks about this idea that there is a myth that like celebrity status can lift you out of anything, right? It lifts you out of poverty, it lifts you out of racism, sexism, like it just elevates you above the rest of society, essentially turning you into an affluent capitalist woman, um, in the case of Britney Spears, a white woman, and that because of Britney Spears's background and where she came from in the South, um, she was never able to fit into that, like, ideal category of an affluent capitalist part of, you know, part of the capitalist system. Um, and so that lays in the crack in where celebrity was not able to lift her out of so-called her position and, and may contribute to a lot of the backlash that she got. So she highlights quite a few examples across Britney Spears's lifetime that was highly publicized because of her media attention that kind of contributed to this idea. But Musial also ties this kind of like disgust with white working class Southerners. And and so she, she makes this distinction that it's specifically white working class Southerners. Like that there's this geographical difference between people who live in the North and people who live in the South. And that inherently we see people who live in the South as like backwards or trashy, uneducated, you know, all of these like negative stereotypes. Um, and she connects this to the 2016 election or post-2016 election and that like, oh, the only people who voted for Trump, you know, are like these white trash people from the South. Like they're too stupid to know what's good for them. Um, and that although, you know, election data doesn't bear that out, that those are the only people who voted for Trump, um, it does also highlight the way that this um, stereotype against, you know, geographical regions and, and the intersection of race, class, and region, how ingrained it is in our society. Um, and, and Britney Spears really was a, I think probably still might continue to be an, an uh, like, the perfect amplification of this intersection of identity. Um, and so one of the examples given in the article is that um, after Britney Spears had moved to Hollywood, was, you know, known to be famous, known to be wealthy, because she'd appeared on some, like, MTV shows, talking about how much her house costs and her cars cost. Um, pictures were taken of her shopping at a Walmart, which, if you understand it in the context of, like, where she comes from, her culture of being white, rural, working class from the South, um, Walmart is the store that is meant that is like marketed and targeted toward that group, right? That is the store of the South or of the white South, right? So um, she, that's where she's going to shop. Like that's where she's going to be comfortable and that's what she's going to know where to go when she needs groceries or, you know, whatever she was purchasing. Um, but after those pictures were posted of her shopping at the store, there's like this flood of basically like classist comments toward her and Musial uh, quotes some that basically the sentiments boil down to well she was given this privilege right like she was given this increase in her class status and increase in her wealth 
and she's wasting it. So that means she's the wrong person. So there were comments like, um, you know, if someone had given me all that money, I would spend it at way classier places, you know, or, um, you know, she's a millionaire, what is she doing there? You know, she's using her money wrong. So it's all the, it's, it kind of underlies all these comments is this idea of you were given a gift, you were granted this privilege of having money and having, like, increased socioeconomic class, and you didn't do what you were supposed to do with it, right? You broke the rules of celebrity by not, by shopping at Walmart, uh, so therefore you are not deserving of it. And I think kind of extrapolating from these points that Musial is making is this idea of, like, well, if she, you know, if Britney Spears was given these class privileges and, and given these wealth privileges and she used them wrong, she, there must be something wrong with her, so we're justified in how we talk about her, right? We're justified in continuing to harass her or were justified in participating in the harassment of her um, because she made a mistake. She did something wrong and she should, you know, be punished for it, basically. Musial then goes on to talk about, um, you know, in the early to mid-2000s, um, Britney Spears is, I believe, married twice, so married, divorced, remarried, um, and had children and then, unfortunately, was in a situation where her children were removed from her custody. Amusal describes this as Britney Spears breaking heteronormative feminine norms. So basically, she couldn't stay married to her first husband, so she broke heteronormative norms of, like, you're supposed to be a good girl and stay with your one man. You know, she got remarried, so that can be conceptualized as, like, she's too sexual, you know, she's wanting to be with someone, she's you know, not loyal to her original partner, you know, whatever weird stuff is there. And then she has her children taken away, so she's a bad mother, right? So basically this all kind of boils down to she isn't being a woman right. She's not doing the right things, um, so therefore any misogynistic ideas we have about her can continue to be per perpetrated because she's not, she's not performing womanhood right. And I think this is such an important point, especially when we talk about this intersection of, like, uh, class and region with gender of that, you know, particularly for like working class women who maybe, you know, aren't able to perform womanhood or femininity in the same way, right? Because they have to work or they have to do specific types of labor that, you know, the, the heteronormative society or the, the patriarchal society doesn't convey value to for women to do, right? They're seen as like, you know, less than feminine or less than a woman because they're engaging in this type of labor. Um, and, you know, many of those women are not as visible as Britney Spears, but I think that this is a, an example of how, you know, misogyny is weaponized against those who don't perform, you know, femaleness or womanness in the right way. It's, like, weaponized against you to be like, well, you're not doing it right, so therefore you deserve to be harassed and attacked. Um, Musial also breaks down the, the kind of the history of the term of white trash, um, because that, that's thrown around a lot in reference to Britney Spears, you know, not just with her shopping at the Walmart, but there was an incident where she was seen, like, with her kids sitting on her lap while she was driving, that was denoted as white trash, you know, just a lot of the stuff, you know, her family being from the South, all, a lot of this is tied to the term white trash that was used against Britney Spears, um, and UCL talks about, this is something that I had not heard of before, but that white trash is often used to refer to white people who are in proximity to people of color in some way. Um, and that in this time period in Britney Spears' life, there were certain incidences that were happening where she was seen 
uh, engaging with the black community more, and her music began to take on a more, like, hip-hop-influenced vibe, like, shifting from pop to hip-hop, um, and Britney Spears started attending, like, black churches, there were rumors around her having an affair with a black man, like, a lot of these stories started coming out, and UCL connects those stories with the 2008, like, a lot of those were happening right up to 2008, which is when, um, I guess you, that's, like, when the conservatorship started, and that's kind of where, like, as a culture, we kind of denote, like, the downfall of Britney Spears, um, and so she kind of outlines how this involvement with communities of color, particularly the black community, um, gets tied to the use of the word white trash more more often with Britney Spears, which then is happening in conjunction with kind of like her essentially public breakdown as, as people continue to harass her. And Musil also talks about how the word white trash has been used, um, since, like, colonial times, <laughs> since, like, like, times of enslavement, and that it was often tied to this idea that poor white people are inherently lazy, um, and was particularly weaponized. Post-emancipation of enslaved people, it was, like, used by northerners to say, oh, you know, white people in the South are so lazy because they can't even get jobs. Like, they can't even get jobs now. Like, because one of the arguments that Northerners was were using against slavery was that it, it's, like, keeping white people from getting jobs because the only, you know, like, agricultural jobs... Well, they, they weren't jobs, right? They were, <laughs> you know, slave labor. Um, and so that was one of the arguments from the Northerners was, like, well, you, you know, if we abolish slavery, then you can open in this, like, labor market up and, and you know, white poorer white people can get jobs in the South. So then when that happened, and there was you know, there, I mean, there was essentially economic collapse in the South, and there weren't any more agricultural jobs because um, the South couldn't compete with other cotton markets. You know, there were white folk who weren't able to work, weren't able to get jobs, just like there weren't, you know, most of the now freed black people weren't able to get jobs either because there was there were no jobs, but the term white trash was used against the white people to be like, well, we opened up the labor markets for you and you couldn't get a job, so you must be lazy. So all the way back in history, that term is connected with laziness and like, when you, you know, calling something white trash is like this idea that there's something inherently wrong or bad with you and that you're, you know, you're white, but you're not even able to be good at being white, <laughs> right? Like, I mean, that's kind of like the implicit thing there. And, you know, and, you know, to be authentic and transparent, I've definitely called things white trash. I've definitely referred to myself as white trash. I've, or referred to other people as white trash. Um, you know, and I think after reading this article about Musiel and, and from Musiel and seeing how this, what she calls like regionalized or geographic stereotyping and, and bias can be really negative and doesn't, you know, contribute to a helpful conversation. So, you know, to wrap all of that up between these two articles, I think it is really possible to see that, you know, there is a narrative about who Britney Spears is that was laid out in the media that is not reflective of who she is as a person. And that if we are going to be consumers of media, then we have to be able to understand, you know, how much of what is given to us is a portrayal of, like, an authentic person and how much is is a constructed 
narrative and and what does that narrative serve right whether it's for young girls and this narrative of you know being a self self-sufficient woman who's able to make choices about yourself uh or a racialized cl- like classist portrayal of of a person from a specific area you know none of those are truly who Britney Spears is right and so we have to be careful and when we jump into conversations um or jump onto cultural conversations about icons or, or people in the media um to kind of shift through these portrayals of them and to see you know where is the media bias where's our own bias and how does that influence how we see these people so next i'm going to transition to talking about women and mental health in general as i move into the section i just want to be clear that when i'm talking about uh women i'm using the group women i'm talking about you know people who identify as women um or femme um and how they are typically represented in the literature. So for women with certain mental health issues, uh, or for women with, with mental health issues, specifically severe mental health issues, um, there are risks associated with diagnoses of more severe mental health disorders. And one reason for some of these risks is that in general, in the general population, uh, women are typically uh, at risk for higher rates of physical and sexual victimization just all around, right? So baseline, regardless of diagnosis, <clears throat> women are more likely to be victimized by certain types of abuse. So when we add in uh, experiencing severe mental illness, um, it just compounds the risk for experiencing victimization of these things. And, you know, I was, I was reading this article from... It's from a while ago. It's from 1997, but it was basically like a pretty extensive meta-analysis of um, research that has been done on women with severe mental illnesses. And severe mental illnesses like typically refer to diagnoses that have like far more severe impacts on your functioning. So, um, you know, things like schizophrenia, um, certain disassociative disorders, delusional disorders, like disorders that really do highly impact and would be considered severe to the point where it would, if you're experiencing this, you're going to be experiencing things like hospitalization. Um, so this is, so this article is specifically looking at women with these higher levels of severity of mental illness and not just women who maybe experience like depression, anxiety, um, you know, or, or more low level, lower end of the spectrum types of, of mental illnesses. Um, but I think this is important to talk about. And again, not diagnosing anyone, <laughs> um, but just kind of highlighting um, how this like intersection of gender and mental health, um, what it can look like for people. So in this article, they, they found these like correlations. And again, it's correlations, so it's not causation, but they did find a higher likelihood of uh, women who had severe mental illnesses having um, a higher likelihood of multiple instances of trauma. So not just experiencing trauma one time or victimization of physical or sexual abuse, but of, of this occurring multiple times over time. Um, and that past, this article talked about how like a lot of the research that was being done at the time was looking at like 
correlations between childhood abuse and, and mental health outcomes. Um, but they were also interested in mental health diagnoses, like severe mental health diagnoses and adult abuse. Um, and so they found that there's a high correlation between women who are diagnosed with schizophrenia and experiencing abusive situations as adults. And so they offered up several reasons for this, uh, or several possible explanations for this, because um, when we're looking at research like this and we're talking about correlations, um, just because two things do have an established linear relationship doesn't mean that they one causes the other. Um, there may be other other factors. So the, the authors are posing some ideas about what those other factors may be. And one that they bring up is that women who are like who are specifically diagnosed with schizophrenia, um, with schizophrenia can come impacts on cognitive and social functioning. That's just part of the way that the diagnosis and the symptoms impact you, um, particularly like impacts to cognitive function because of all the other things, the the positive cognitive symptoms. Um, and there's also this, this side of schizophrenia, they're called negative cognitive symptoms, which is related to like a reduction in ability to function cognitively um, and, and impa impairments to social functioning. So women diagnosed with schizophrenia may be less likely to have a social support network, you know, or to be plugged into a community in the same way that women without schizophrenia are. And so the authors are, are speculating that perhaps this like impaired level of functioning across these um, factors leads to um, them being seen as targets for abuse because they're more likely to be isolated or, or you know less likely to have access to resources they so so that's kind of like if we look at like the schizophrenia diagnosis comes first uh, then contributes to a higher likelihood of being abused because being seen as a victim um, they also talk about something that has been known as the stress diathesis model which is like someone with schizophrenia may be genetically predisposed to experience you know, symptoms related to their diagnosis, but they haven't, uh, like there hasn't been a stressor that has like kind of pushed the genetic expression of the disorder of the edge. And so experiencing adult abuse can be um, part of that stressor that kind of like pushes you over the edge to maybe the first time where your d diagnosis like impairs your life or impa impairs your functioning in some way. Uh, and that the presence of a, a, of abuse in adulthood, the presence of abuse in adulthood can serve as this like soup, <laughs> soup of factors and environmental factors and stressors that that kind of moderate like how severe is the diagnosis going to present. Um, and another point they made that, you know, although this article was written in 1997, I think it's still really relevant today is that um, it is possible that sometimes uh, women are diagnosed with schizophrenia when they may more accurately needed to have been described with something like PTSD or disassociative disorder. And that, you know, when we don't, and, and extrapolating from that, I think it's important that when we don't assess for or we don't address possible traumas when we are thinking about diagnosing, then someone can present with a severe impact on their life with their mental health functioning um, and without that context of the traumas or the understanding of the environment that the person is coming from uh, it can look like you know run-of-the-mill we diagnose with schizophrenia but having this deeper understanding um, 
may help mental health professionals make more informed diagnoses and that the prevalence of schizophrenia or the prevalence of schizophrenia and abuse uh, may not actually be as high if it's not in fact the appropriate diagnosis. So again, not diagnosing anyone based off of anything in the media, but it just is important to think about that um, there have historically been some diagnoses that are not given out as much or have been highly gate like have have been gate kept. Um, PTSD is a big one because like tr- like back in the day, traditionally it was only applied to people who had seen combat. Um, and we know that that's not true, that PTSD can manifest in any population as long as there's a presence of a trauma. And so this may be a reason for why there's a high correlation between schizophrenia and adult abuse. Um, and it's also possible to have both, to have PTSD and schizophrenia, right? There's We can have dual diagnoses. It's possible. And you can see how um, experiencing PTSD and experiencing schizophrenia um, does what kind of bounce off of each other and kind of exacerbate functioning in your life. Um, in general, outside of severe mental illness, mental health issues. So often you may hear things like women are more diagnosed, like women are diagnosed more often with mental health issues. Um, but research actually, like if you look at all mental health issues, they're actually pretty equal across the binary gender. So if we're just looking at men and women, like as demographic groups, like prevalence of mental health issues in general are equal. However, women are more likely to uh, be diagnosed with mood or anxiety disorders. So mood disorders include um, depression. They can include bipolar disorder. Um, it just depends There's on which level because, uh, uh, you know, more severe with manic episodes would be categorized as a severe mental illness, whereas with hypomanic episodes would be categorized as a mood disorder. Uh, and then with anxiety disorders, which also include things like OCD. Uh, well, that's how they used to be categorized. They're, second ca- they're a separate category now, but at the core is this like underlying anxiety um, and even some things like adjustment disorders. So women are more likely to be diagnosed with those, while men are more likely to be diagnosed with substance use disorders, and according to this article, antisocial personality disorder. Um, And I think for like a social explanation of why that happens, um, I think oftentimes it it is more acceptable for men to ask for help for a substance use disorder than it is for them to seek therapy for a mood disorder. Um, And I can say from personal experience working with men with substance use issues, even if they're not full-blown substance use disorders, um, oftentimes when you get kind of down to brass tacks, there is like underlying depression, underlying anxiety, underlying like other mental health stuff. Um, and the substance is really just a coping, not necessarily a healthy coping skill, but it's a coping skill nonetheless. Um, and so I think that, you know, the, the, that difference between men and women and that women are diagnosed more often with depression, I think that could be, that gap could be narrowed if, you know, we did more, if, if men who sought treatment for substance use disorders were also, like, given comprehensive mental health treatment, um, and not just having the substance use disorder diagnosed, because we know that those are often, um, happening at the same time as mood disorders. So it's highly possible that this, like, gap is just because that's more acceptable for men to come in with it, or, or as healthcare professionals, we're more, 
likely to give a substance use disorder diagnosis to a man um, and not do that investigation of underlying mood stuff. So it's, it's you know, it's on us. <laughs> it's, it's on us mental health professionals. Um, this article did also talk about the antisocial personality disorder being more common. They don't really talk about where they get that from, um, which I think is a little odd, but my guess would be that is because... Um, Things like antisocial personality disorder are typically overrepresented in like incarcerated populations, and men typically uh, are like overwhelming represented in the criminal justice system. And unfortunately, especially in California, unfortunately, uh, the prison system is the largest provider for mental health treatment. So it's kind of like, well. That's where, if you're a man, you are going to be more likely to experience mental health treatment. Um, but that's also where there's going to be a higher prevalence of this type of personality disorder because one of the core tenets or symptoms is like antisocial behavior, <laughs> which is oftentimes which is criminal behavior. So I think there's something there to be teased out that the article didn't do. So I'd say that's a weakness of the article. Um, but they do they do also talk about why uh, women or people who menstruate are more likely to experience these types of like depressive disorders. And so we do have uh, two right now. There's two disorders in the DSM that are like specifically tied to menstruation or like menstrual cycles or gestational cycles. So there's first of all postpartum depression, right, which typically occurs. Um, after the birth of a baby. It can also begin before the birth, like during pregnancy. Uh, there's like a span uh, in which it's possible. And, and um, people who develop this type of depression, it's, it's you know, exacerbated by hormonal shifts. So there's there's that like biological aspect to it. Um, and then there's also an disorder, another disorder called premenstrual dysphoric disorder, um, which is categorized by you know, like intense mood or anxiety symptoms that occur like within the menstrual cycle of, of someone who's menstruating. Uh, so again, suggesting that there's like this, this hormonal influence um, of, of, of like this relationship between hormones in the body and um, mental health. And so, you know, historically, you know, the language that we have used about who menstruates and who would have the hormones that would contribute to these diagnoses have been, we've used the term women, right? And so that also contributes to why this, like, there's this disparity of, like, women have higher prevalence of of these mental health issues because there are these these ways that hormones interact um, with mental health. But, you know, we don't know. We have better understanding that just because someone has uh, a higher prevalence of a certain hormone or has, you know, certain sexual organs does not denote that that's how they identify their gender. Um, so I, I, I think, and this is my personal opinion, but I think that as we start to be more inclusive and more understanding of gender expression and gender performance and gender identity, um, we might see the way that we measure prevalence of, of mental health issues start to shift. Um, and I think also, you know, to, to that's to address, like, the biological aspect, but to address, like, the social aspect, I think, as we are able to make mental health care more accessible, particularly for people who identify as male, um, making it more accessible and making it not just more accessible, but, but of having a greater understanding of how to assess so that a diagnosis of, like, a substance use, use disorder isn't just, like, slapped on someone because of a, a coping skill 
or a maladaptive coping skill, but that the like underlying mechanisms are looked at, and that the you know those types of people or those populations feel comfortable kind of expressing themselves. So um, that kind of wraps it up for me today. <laughs> um, this is probably the most like disorganized episode that I've ever done, um, but I got really into a lot of the different aspects of it, um, and I wanted to have a different take on this topic, um, you know, partly because I think Britney Spears has been so over-discussed in our culture, and I want to bring attention to the issues that surround her case without necessarily contributing to the continued like media attention on her. Um, and, you know, I read an article about feminism and I got excited, so I had to share it. <laughs> so to wrap up everything that I covered today, you know, we learned about different types of conservatorships um, and how there are different gaps in the system that allow for exploitation um, and a reminder that conservatives are subjected to specific rights, um, and those rights are not taken away with the presence of a conservatorship. Um, you know, talking about contextualizing Britney Spears in a uh, through a feminist lens within her, you know, context in media, um, and how that influences the way that we perceive her and the way that we interact with her work, as well as how, in general, mental health can mental health issues are correlated with higher rates of victimization in women. And I think when we put this all together, the, you know, the conservatorship stuff, the context of Britney Spears and how she's been consistently scrutinized um, and contextualized in maybe the wrong way or maybe in a way that she didn't want to be with um, any mental health issues that could open up for further opportunities for victimization, I think it really just is the perfect soup for the stuff that has been going on in her life. Um, and so I hope that by kind of teasing out these different pieces, we can gain an, a better understanding of what is happening or what is potentially happening in this situation without having to consistently rehash details of this woman's life. Um, and, you know, without having to speculate about specifics about her life, I think we can make this a larger conversation about women, about mental health, about media and celebrity culture. Um, and so, you know, this is just one part of the conversation around this topic, but I I was really interested in it. I was happy to take it on, um, and I appreciate you listening all the way through. Um, and so with that, I'm going to say thank you, and we will see you in the next episode. To see the sources and resources mentioned in the episode, visit psychologicallymindedpod.com. To contact me with any questions or comments about this topic or upcoming episodes, email me at psychmindedpod at gmail.com. Please subscribe and review the podcast. Thank you and see you in the next episode.